This is LSU Experimental, where we explore exciting research occurring at Louisiana State University and learn about the individuals posing the questions. I'm Becky Carmichael. What information does the biodiversity of your area hold? Potentially, it tells a story about the mechanisms, processes, and traits of organisms that inhabit the space. In this episode, we're talking to Kyle Harms, LSU College of Science, Mary Lou Applewhite, endowed professor in the Department of Biological Sciences. From deep in the Panamanian rainforest to right here on our own Louisiana pine savannas, Kyle has traveled to places around the world in pursuit of understanding the relationships of biodiversity and evolution and how they shape ecosystems. Hi, my name is Kyle Harms. I am a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and the College of Science here at Louisiana State University. I have been a professor at LSU for nearly 20 years. Being a professor provides me the opportunity to teach and carry out my own scientific research. I am especially drawn toward ecology and evolutionary biology for my teaching and research. Ecology and evolutionary biology are closely intertwined and are concerned with the study of organisms animals, plants, fungi, microbes, etc. Ecology deals primarily with organismal interactions with one another and the broader environment. Evolutionary biology concerns the means by which all those organisms came to be who they are. These disciplines appeal to my lifelong sense of wonder and passion for natural history. In other words, how organisms go about their lives in nature. Much of science is the enterprise to characterize natural patterns and to determine the underlying natural processes that create, modify, or maintain those patterns. Let me give you an example. At least since Alexander von Humboldt explored the New World tropics more than 200 years ago, we have understood that tropical latitudes harbor a great diversity of species. That is, extraordinary biodiversity. Since then, explorers, scientists, and others have together established a general global pattern. On average, species diversity increases as you approach the equator. Another way to say that is that there is, global, there is a global biodiversity gradient. The places with the most species or kinds of organisms on the planet tend to be tropical. Components of this overall global pattern are the diversity levels in each particular site. So, for example, on the island in the middle of the Panama Canal where I carried out my PhD dissertation research, a single 50 hectare rainforest research plot contains about 300 species of trees. A 50 hectare rectangular plot is not that big. It would easily fit within the LSU campus, say from the far side of Tiger Stadium to the other side of the parade grounds, more recently, collaborators and I found that in a similar but 50% smaller research plot in the central Amazon, there are more than a thousand species of trees. These are huge numbers relative to temperate zone forests. Temperate zone forests are those we have here in Louisiana or other parts of North America, away from the equator and away from the tropics. Same sized patches of temperate zone forests contain a tenth or fewer species of trees. These patterns then beg the question, why? Why do the patterns we observe in the natural world exist? Science is the process by which we ask those questions and try to produce answers. The answers tell the stories of the patterns in nature. In other words, how the world works. The answers tell those stories in terms of the natural processes or mechanisms, the underlying causes 
that produce, modify, or maintain the patterns. During our conversation today, I look forward to talking about two broad themes of my own biodiversity research. First, the diversity and community ecology of high diversity ecosystems like tropical rainforests. And second, the natural history and importance of diverse organismal traits, especially those that catch and hold my attention and might just interest you too. Kyle, I am really excited to have you join us today for an episode of LSU Experimental. And, you know, I know you and I have known each other for quite a while. I want to say that I took your class. Your, yours was one of the first classes I took as a graduate student in, um, in 2004. So, I've been, I've been really excited to have you join us today, and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing with our listeners a little bit about you and your research and, you know, how you came here to, to LSU. Becky, thanks very much. I, I thoroughly uh, appreciate the invitation. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I, as you say, we've been friends for most of the time that I've been here at LSU. You took that course just a couple of years after I arrived here, and, and I'm looking forward to this, this conversation. Really? I, so I didn't realize that. that. So we were both kind of new to the, to the uh, Louisiana area then. Yeah, that's right. I, <laughs> I moved here in, in 2002. So, so I may have exaggerated a little bit when I said well, it's not really an exaggeration. I said I've been here almost 20 years, and that's and that's true. I, I will have been here 19 years in January. So we're kind of we're kind of diving into one of the first questions I really wanted to ask you about is uh, I wanted to learn a little bit more about your path into becoming a a researcher and your passion for ecology. Do you want to share a little bit about when this developed and if there was any pivotal things that really piqued your interests? Oh, sure. So I grew up as a farm kid in, in Iowa, and I wasn't on the farm the whole time, but that's, that's how I got started. And in many ways, I attribute a, a passion for natural history and, and being outdoors and, and experiencing things in the, in the outdoors to, to that upbringing. I, I think I was unusual as a kid in the sense that I, I knew that I wanted to be some kind of biologist for almost as long as I have memories going back. My mom claims that as a very little kid, I would have toy zoos and pens of animals and that sort of thing scattered all over the, over the kitchen. And, and I remember being influenced by some of those programs we watched, uh, documentaries back when I was a kid, the Jacques Cousteau and Marlon Perkins, the Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom series. And and, and at that point, of course, that's what I thought a, a, a biologist was. And it, it didn't mature into an interest in academia until much later. But I had my, my uh, National Park Ranger phase. I wanted to be a, a ranger. I, I toyed with the possibilities of uh, veterinary medicine and human medicine, you know, flavors of biology. Uh, but then once I got into, when it, once I got into college, I realized that you can become an academic biologist and conduct research out in the field. You can teach about the kinds of things that interested me. 
And so the, the passion grew into something that I could call a career. I think that it's fascinating to learn, and I think I already had known this a little bit, that you also came from an area in the Midwest in a farming rural community. And I have to say that is that was a very important component of my own childhood was just being able to go out and um, dig in the dirt. And since, you know, the fields were right there, you know, they, they would turn over the soil and you could always find really interesting either insects or other kinds of organisms, or even for me, it was always rocks. And uh, just that, that direct connection to nature and kind of, um, and seeing that process. So I really wanted to back up for our listeners. I want to kind of give them some grounding for, uh, to really understand what kind of questions you as a community ecologist explore and to really dive into to the importance of biodiversity. Yeah, let's start talking about the uh, biodiversity of high diversity plant communities. So this has been a theme of mine for a good long time. In grad school, I got my start in, in rainforest research. And, and here, I've tried to wear two hats, both the tropical rainforest research hat, and then also the, the uh, subtropical or temperate zone pine savanna research hat. And again, I, I was fascinated by the pine savannas when I first moved here. And they have incredible diversity. And, and we can break down biodiversity into species diversity. We could talk about uh, genetic diversity. There, we could talk about trait diversity. There, there are all kinds of ways to talk about diversity. But if you just simply think of it as variation, there's a great deal of variety or variation in the organisms that we find here. Uh, and, and especially in you know, what I focus on, the ground cover in these pine savannas. Now, the, the birds are diverse, the, the herps, you know, the lizards and, and amphibians and, and other reptiles, uh, the insects, you know, the fungi, there's a great deal of diversity across all those different groups, but, but I'll mostly be talking about the, the plant diversity. And so what I mean specifically is that you can go out into some of these sites and lay out a, a one meter squared quadrat and find sometimes 40 or 50 different species of flowering plants. <laughs> And that's, it's mind blowing levels of, of diversity in terms of uh, numbers of, of species. And then each one of those species has a different kind of flower, has a different physiology, has a different way of, of making a living. And so there are differences in genetic differences. There are, as I keep saying, trait differences. And what I mean by traits are all those different aspects of those different species of plants. So their leaf shapes, their, the number of flowers they make, the colors that those flowers produce, all those different sorts of things are, are the individual traits. And there's just wild, wonderful variety in all of that in this ground cover. And so as a community ecologist, where I, I want to study that collection of organisms and understand the kinds of patterns that we see in those collections of organisms, one of the big questions is, well, why? <laughs> why is there so much diversity in that ground cover? And 
do a first approximation in kind of a fuzzy way, you could say, well, some of it, some of the answer is, has to do with the origins. How did all these different species come to be found here? And that's some combination of, of dispersal, either of the, the individual species that are found here or their, their lineages, and then uh, speciation that occurred here in the, the region. Um, and on the other side, the, the maintenance, the kinds of processes that might maintain these high levels of, of diversity. And, and either way, it's a, it's a set of underlying processes that help explain that overall pattern. And so as a, as a, a field-oriented ecologist wearing that particular hat, I'm especially interested in the kinds of ecological processes that matter for diversity in the ground cover today. And so we know very well that one important natural process in these pine savannas is fire. And this is something that, that our group has worked on a, a little bit, but, but lots of other folks have given us the understanding that frequent fire is incredibly important as a process maintaining this high diversity ground cover. If you don't have frequent fire, then you end up having a generally a hardwood forest come in instead. And, and that's a lower diversity uh, community type than these, than these pine savannas. And so, so that's you know, one natural process that we try to mimic through management. And so in places that have uh, either well-restored or or well um, maintained pine savanna, the, the, the human management activities include frequent fire. Also in the process of looking at, in our process of looking at the natural processes, we also, uh, we realized that there's, we think a, a, a key element to structuring this ground cover. And, and it's, it's a really exciting, pattern and, and we think set of associated processes that uh, help maintain the diversity of, of, uh, of, of all the different plants that are found there. And it hinges on these dominant bunch grasses that, uh, that, that dial down the ability of other species to outcompete one another. And so we think that, that, that that's part of the the, um, the pattern of this diversity and, and gives us some insights into the underlying processes that maintain this diversity. So there's a couple of things that I really want to unpack here. And first, I think that the diversity of those pine savannas, the longleaf pine savannas, and exactly what you were finding in those, those quadrats. You know, when you're, you're saying, you know, 30 to 40 ground cover species, and you've already, you know, when you were kind of outlining your your research in um, Panama and then in the Amazon, the number of tree species. So I think that there's something to be said about the fact that we're finding so many of those ground covers, the, the, the smaller species that were in a smaller plot and that's still here in Louisiana. So it's further away from that equator where you would potentially find that type of diversity. Yeah, and I think you're making a, a, a good point. I mean, I, 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 I sort of emphasized the global diversity gradient in, the, in that initial monologue, 
but now we're we're sort of stepping back and and uh, looking at some more site specific patterns. And so there are there are places that have extraordinary diversity uh, outside of the tropics as well. And so, for example, here along the the southeastern coast of the of the U.S. in the this coastal plain, this is in fact a, a group of of scientists recently uh, recently put together the evidence, the good evidence for this being what you might think of as the, the 36th biodiversity hotspot on the planet. Wow. And so we can be very pleased with the fact that, that we live within one of, the, one of the biodiversity hotspots of the planet. And so there are extra tropical or outside of the tropics uh, places that have extraordinary diversity. And so when I say a global biodiversity gradient, I, I don't mean that there's a just uh, continuous smooth <laughs> mm -hmm. diversity change from the equator toward the poles. There, there are these, these really interesting uh, biodiversity hotspots that show up in, in other places as well. And so, yeah, we're, we're right embedded in, in one of those. It's looking at the scale with which we're examining, looking at um, where that diversity is taking place, understanding how, and I guess this was the second point that I wanted to unpack, this intersection of biodiversity and its role in uh, evolutionary processes. So with the example that you shared with longleaf pine savannas and the bunch grasses that, that exist in, the, in that ecosystem, and the proximity of bunch grasses to each other. And the things that I'm, I'm remembering, I'm remembering big blue stem and little blue stem, right? From, yeah, from yeah. research. Yeah. Um, and I'm also remembering digging through all of that grass and finding, you know, the, uh, the little sundews and yeah, other little exactly. kinds of... That's exactly it. That's right. So when you're looking at kind of those locations... I think that you're articulating, and I want to make sure I'm understanding, you're articulating that this biodiversity gives us a window into evolutionary processes, both for the structure of that ecosystem, as well as, do you feel like it also gives you an insight into the function that some of these organisms have that exist there? Oh, sure. And so, so every, every uh, species that's in any one of these ecosystems has its own unique story and its own unique evolutionary history, its own reasons for why it's able to, uh, why it is a part of that, <laughs> of that ecosystem. And I won't go so far as to say uh, I, I almost said why it's able to be a part of that ecosystem, and, and, and that's not quite correct because it, it, it is, and, and it might be fleeting. It, it might not necessarily be there for the long term, and so that's, that's part of what you, one might be interested in in looking further into the, the individual nature of, of, of a species or a population's existence in a given place. So does it have the kinds of traits, as we were talking about before, that might, uh, that might allow it to persist for a long time? Or is it something that uh, maybe recently arrived and it's not 
fated to have a long-term history in that in that site. It's just not well suited to the site. And so, so yeah, there's a there's a, a, a complex history for every single one of the, the species that's out there that involves some combination of, of dispersal, uh, evolution, and interactions with other organisms and, and the environment. So, so sure, I, I, I think I understand what, what you mean and, and that would definitely be true for, for every one of the, the species out there. When you've conducted your studies here in Louisiana, were there elements of what you are elements or patterns that you saw from your plots in Costa Rica and in Amazon and the Amazon that easily translated into the processes that you were seeing in the pine savanna? Some certainly, and so so for example, one of the important underlying uh, what you can think of as processes or causes or mechanisms for high diversity anywhere, one of, the, one of them, one of the important ones is that every single uh, site or every single location has some degree of variation everywhere you go in, in nature. Some sites are a little drier, some sites are a little wetter, some sites have a little more nitrogen or phosphorus nutrients in the soil, some sites are, are maybe exposed more to uh, heating by the by the sun, you know, aspects on slope and so on. And so, so there's variation out there, in, out there in nature. And so one key, of course, to, to all of this is that often you find differences among organisms that correspond with those differences in the environment. So you have some organisms whose traits make them better at dealing with the, the dry hot places and other organisms have traits that make them better at dealing with wetter cooler places, for example. And so that's, you know, that cross cuts every ecosystem and community on the, on the planet. And so, you know, I worked a bit on, on that sort of thing with tropical trees as a grad student. One of my, one of my dissertation chapters was about exactly that. Mm -hmm. And we find that here in the, the pine savannas too. And, it, and it's not really, surprising. You know, you go to a, a drier hilltop and you're going to find uh, some species there that you won't find at all down in the wetter uh, bog areas and, and vice versa. And so, so that's some of it, but, th but that's not the whole explanation. And so in those tropical forests, we think that part of the explanation, part of the, the maintenance of diversity explanation is that there are relatively host-specific enemies that tend to attack the, the more common uh, individuals. Uh, the, the individuals, uh, um, species, populations that are, more, that are more common. So if you have a greater abundance of a particular species, those individuals tend to get hit harder by their natural enemies, fungal pathogens and herbivores and that sort of thing. And there's a bit of evidence for that occurring in these, in these pine savannas, but not nearly to the same extent as in the tropical forests. And, and, and I don't yet know whether that's because uh, folks haven't looked as hard or whether it really is the fact that, um, that that's a, a, a difference. It looks like that's one of the important processes in the, in the tree communities. And, and 
I, I haven't seen enough good evidence to think that it's among the most important processes in the, in the pine savannas. With kind of what you're seeing or what you have seen in pine savannas, what has been surprising finds for you? Well, I think the, that bunch grass <laughs> story is, is a surprising find. I, I feel like that is a, an important contribution that our, our group has made. So, so no one had previously considered that as an important mechanism for maintaining diversity in the ground cover. And so the first thing we did was simply ask about the pattern itself. Are those bunch grasses patterned in a way that they could have this kind of uh, diversifying influence on the rest of the ground cover? And yes, indeed. In fact, that was one of my uh, one of my graduate students took that on as a project, Catherine Hovanes, and and an important dissertation chapter in her PhD dissertation was exactly that uh, that that characterization of that pattern. And so then she also did some work trying to better understand process in two ways. So so there's the there are processes that give rise to that particular pattern. And she did a bit of that in her dissertation as well. And then there's also how that pattern works as a process to help diversify the rest of the ground cover. And so, yeah, there's a really interesting uh, pattern process interplay there. And, and that, that's a, a contribution that we've made. And, I, and, and, and I'm not saying that it's the last word on the subject. It's entirely possible that someone will come along and completely overturn that as a, as a useful idea for helping us understand the ground cover, but that's fine, that's, that's the way science works. It's also possible that the more folks who look at this will provide supporting evidence and it'll become an, an even better supported uh, part of the puzzle for understanding the ground cover. And, and either way, it's, it's the way science works. We've given our best guess and our best sort of working model or for how it operates, and and we'll we'll see where it goes from here. I'm glad you're sharing, you know, the, the how science works and the fact that it is not just a definitive, just a final answer, and then we we kind of move on. But instead, there is re-questioning, re-examination. Now let's see if the same holds in a different location, if this uh, or how it differs in a in another location, another ecosystem, a different with a different set of species. Uh, uh, that I think is one of, and it's always been one of the major draws for me for science and, and making sure that we understand that that is, that's all part of the process um, with it. Sure, and folks have, have long thought that, folks have long recognized, and, and as I said, that, uh, that frequent fire is really important in these, in these pine savannas and for, for maintaining the character of uh, the savanna character and the high diversity nature of the of the ground cover, but our observation is that for the longest time, uh, it, it was kind of left there. <laughs> fire is important. Fire keeps out the hardwoods. Fire keeps out the the forest and maintains the savanna character. But how, <laughs> you know, why? Do you get the, the diversity? You could have fire and have one species of grass and one species of pine and you'd still have a savanna. 
Yeah. And so, so what we think we've brought to the, to the explanation is an added piece to the puzzle that helps uh, potentially explain the diversity part that's really left unexplained by the fire explanation. The fire explanation does a good job of telling you why you have savanna versus closed canopy forest. Mm -hmm. But we think that this extra piece to the puzzle <clears throat> gives us a, a, a better idea for why <clears throat> the ground cover is, is diverse. So just imagine the contrast between say a, a lawn where you have a dominant grass species that really takes up and covers all available space. <laughs> There's not much room for other things. Sure, you're, my lawn has a, has a yeah. medium level diversity. <laughs> if my lawn were tussocks or bunches or clumps, the bunch grasses, I think that it could have a much higher diversity. And, and so pine savannas are like that. They have these bunch grasses that provide opportunities for there to be a high diversity, whereas a lawn or a sward or a continuous cover of some other kind of grass wouldn't, wouldn't do that. And so it's a, it's, that's a really interesting contrast. And we think that exactly what you described, the character of these bunch grasses, so little blue stem over in our part of the range wider grass, the Aristides over in the eastern part of the range, uh, really, really do this and provide that, uh, that, that diversifying structure. I would really like, because it's not just research, you also have had a passion for teaching and, and sharing your knowledge and kindling kind of someone else's enthusiasm for topics, right? I'd like to know, how do the ecosystems of Louisiana how do they provide you with the best opportunity to educate students? And is there, one, is there a particular favorite ecosystem in Louisiana of yours? And is there a particular place that you like to take students um, when you have the opportunity? Oh, sure. Well, that's another aspect of biodiversity, really, that, that we have here in, in Louisiana. And that's more the, the landscape level diversity. So we have all kinds of different habitats or community types or ecosystem types, however you want to you want to phrase it. So we have salt marshes, we have bottomland hardwood forests, we have Cajun prairies, we have all these wonderful uh, community types or ecosystem types. And so you know that's another aspect of, of biodiversity. You can zoom out and take that sort of ecosystem level or community level view and see our state as, as wonderfully diverse at that level as well. And so there are all kinds of opportunities for, uh, for field courses or, or field experiences. And two of my favorite places to take, uh, to take students are the Nature Conservancy sites over in the Florida parishes. So uh, Abita Springs, the Abita Creek Preserve, the Nature Conservancy site there, and then also Lake Ramsey. Uh, another one of the Nature Conservancy sites. And those are, are beautifully managed, high diversity uh, examples of the kind of ecosystem we're talking about. And so, yeah, in answer to your question of my favorite, <laughs> I think you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's the, it's the, the pine savanna. And, and we also have wonderful examples up in, up in Kasachi. I just, I, I myself haven't taken students 
all the way up to Kasachi, but uh, there are some, some wonderful, um, really well-managed sites there as well. I would agree with you. There's something uh, incredible in, in particular about uh, Abita Springs when you go and you see the pitcher plants and you know you get to really observe these carnivorous uh, plants, which are they're just weird and they're creepy, but they're so interesting. And, and to see them, to see those in action and it not being, you know, the Venus flytrap that you might find as the oddity plant in, in a store, but actually to see something in action. I'm glad you, you mentioned the, the carnivorous plants and their, their interesting traits, because in, in some ways that helps us talk a little bit about the, the, the other interest of mine, and that is in organismal uh, traits that, that draw my attention. Uh, and in fact, recently, a, a buddy of mine, a collaborator of mine, and I, and, and then a third uh, collaborator, published a, uh, an article on work that we did more than 20 years ago. And this is going back to the tropics and, and talking about a, a little understory uh, shrub or treelet in, uh, on a couple of mountaintops in, in Panama. And the interesting comparison with the, the carnivorous plants that, that we have so many wonderful examples of here is that in both of those cases, we think that the plants have uh, odd or unusual uh, ways of enhancing their nutrient economy. So in the oh. case of pitcher plants and the sundews and the carnivorous plants, they're taking animal prey and that increases the, the nitrogen and, and other elements that they need relative to what they might get from the relatively poor and acidic soils. And then this plant in Panama, is a, it's a litter trapper. So at the ends of its branches, the plant produces uh, spirals of tightly packed leaves. And so at the end of each branch, you have essentially a, a leafy basket. And this leafy basket then collects litter. So fine debris, leaves and small twigs and that sort of thing, falling from the, the taller canopy. And then in each one of those baskets, that litter decomposes into a, a rich humus. Mm -hmm. And the plant grows adventitious roots off of its stem into those baskets of humus. <clears throat> and so it's a, it's a litter trapping plant that enhances its nutrient economy by catching litter before it hits the forest floor. They're, they're understory trees. Okay. And in fact, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, why would a, a lifestyle like this work if they were out in the open? <laughs> They wouldn't be able to collect any litter if they were out in the open. So, so it's a lifestyle that works well uh, in, the, in the understory. I could almost see them collecting, you know, having these baskets and you're talking about these advantageous roots growing in to this, to this, this, this catch, right? It's, <laughs> I'm just thinking it's like this tree has put its hand out and then it's, it's got this nice big straw to just slurp up all of the, uh, all of the good, the goodness that has fallen and, and to kind of replenish its own, um, not to replenish, but to help it support its own kind of survival within this canopy structure. Yeah, exactly. And we're, we're, we're happy about this, uh, just having 
um, come out as a, as a new publication. We, uh, it, it took a long time to, to make this happen. Uh, we had sort of been sitting on that story for a, a, a long time, but then an opportunity arose. And, and so it's just now out as what, they, what the journal refers to as its flora obscura uh, <laughs> section. <laughs> and so it's, it's in uh, Plants, People, Planet. And they've been, they've, they've, they've just recently uh, put this up on, online. I'd like to talk, I think, a little bit more about these, these long-term research projects that you have been engaged in. And I know you alluded to some of those within your monologue, but here I feel like you've had to have a lot of patience and you have to have a lot of dedication as well as collaboration uh, with those that are going to take a part of these projects. And, you know, and I, you know, I think that many may not be aware that in ecology, this is not always something that you go out and you do a study and you're done in one season, that there tends to be multiple seasons, which then can be decades in some cases to collect this information. How do you, how do you keep your own motivation and patience to, to keep going through and, and doing these, these data collections and for these particular questions? Oh, the motivation comes from, from curiosity. You wanna know, know the answers. And so I think that's true for, for most scientists. And so you, your question was about long-term data sets or long-term observations or, or developing a, a, a deep time understanding of some particular organism or some particular place. And, and so I can, I can talk a little bit about, I, I, I've had the great good fortune of collaborating with several groups that have done these kinds of long-term projects. And, and one example was my, one of my postdoc advisors. So uh, his name was Joe Connell and he just, he just recently passed away. So he was 96 years old and wow. had a very long and productive uh, career in, in ecology. So he's, he's one of the, the eminent <laughs> ecologists that we, we look to uh, for having provided a, a whole series of very important concepts that, that we use to understand the, the natural world. Anyway, he also made important contributions through his empirical work. So in other words, what he did out in the, out in the field. And he in 1962, I think it was, <laughs> established a series of uh, quadrats and transects on the Great Barrier Reef and then followed them for years and years to better understand coral reef dynamics. And then a, a year later, so in 1963, he started a, a similar kind of project in the rainforest in Queensland, Australia, up in the northeastern part of Australia. So he had one tropical rainforest plot, one subtropical rainforest plot. And again, he started these in, in 1963. And so my small contribution to the effort was uh, 50 years later, I got to participate in the, the 50th anniversary census of the, of the, the Connell plots. And, and it was great, good fun then to be a, a, a part of that long-term effort. And uh, so, I, and, and it was curiosity that drove 
Joe in the first place out to the reef in, in, in Australia to better understand the, the dynamics and the diversity and the inner workings of the, the coral reef. And that also then the, the next year propelled him into the, into the rainforest. And so it was just that long-term curiosity. And you have to, of course, realize that if you're dealing with long-lived organisms, there's a certain amount you can learn in the short term but there's a certain amount that you can't <laughs> unless you follow them for the long term. And so there's a, there's a real necessity there for gaining a full understanding of either the organisms or the, the communities or the ecosystems by having these, these long-term observations and careful measurements and, and so on. I'm glad that you've, you're bringing up uh, Joe Connell and you know, for a few reasons, right? The the fact that he was doing research in different diverse locations um, within the same kind of umbrella of, of aspects, right? But then also the side of the time in which some questions in science, and it goes back to um, a little bit earlier when we were talking about Catherine Hovain's uh, dissertation, right? It's a process. It's it's something that's continual, and and we as uh, as investigators will keep going and and looking at a particular situation, see if that pattern or process holds into another location. But then also, how this is a lifetime, and sometimes those things that we're trying to explore are not questions that can be addressed in one person's lifetime, but they take multiple different individuals. Right, that's exactly right. So, so just one quick example from Joe's rainforest research that re required that long-term effort is that he had the, the good sense right from the beginning to look at all the different rooted life cycle stages. So he, across the entire uh, set of plots had marked and identified and, and mapped and, and measured all the, the big trees, all the adult trees. And then just simply because there are so many seedlings and small saplings, he subsampled those. So he has transects that run through, uh, belt transects that run through the, the plots. And so along these belt transects, so smaller portions of the, the, the entire plots, he has marked and, and mapped and measured and identified the, the saplings and, and uh, seedlings. And so to be able to compare the extent to which there's uh, differential mortality uh, across species in the different size classes, we were only able to do that recently because it was only recently that we had enough long-term records for the big trees that we could match their mortality to the little seedlings. Now, I know wow. I've just said a lot there, and, and so let me try and, and explain <laughs> what, what we're talking about. So a group of marked seedlings in the, in the forest floor will mostly die before they become canopy trees, most of those individuals. So they have a high mortality rate. Over a given year, a large proportion of the seedlings will die. Now the big trees have pretty low mortality, you know, on the order of say two to 3% per 
per year of the big trees will die. And so if you want to make a comparison of how things change for a collection of seedlings compared to a collection of big trees, and you wanna match their mortality, you either need a very, you, well, what you need is, is a relatively short period of time for the seedlings and a relatively long period of time for the big trees. So if you wanna match, say, 20% mortality in the little seedlings, you, you don't want to wait very long in between your censuses. And then for the big trees, you need a good long stretch. And as it turned out, we needed about 50 years <laughs> to be able to match with our, our shortest term seedling census. And then we were able to make this, this really careful and uh, appropriate comparison of how those groups of stems diversify relative to one another. And it turns out that the, the smaller ones tend to diversify as they grow and age more <laughs> than the bigger ones do when you match for mortality. And what that basically means is that there appear to be more of those kinds of, you know, earlier I talked about uh, common species tend to be hit harder by their enemies, the fungal pathogens and herbivores and so on, so that individuals have a, a higher probability of dying than the rarer species. And that's sort of a, a, a general pattern. Well, it turns out that that, that very process is one that tends to occur more consequentially in the small seedlings and small saplings than in the big trees. And that was something that we could only possibly do with those long, long-term records. It's just not possible with, with a, sh a shorter term set of, of records. So, so that is a, an, a concrete example of a result that was only possible by at least two generations of, of ecologists, Joe's generation setting up the project and my generation together with my close uh, collaborator and, and friend who's inherited that project, Pete Green in, in Australia. Uh, it, it took that to, to figure that out. And I think that you're really emphasizing the importance of collaboration in science um, and how we have to be able in order to, to, to connect with those that are have similar interests, but even sometimes they don't always have to have that similar interest. Sometimes you just have to, it's, it's that um, serendipitous types of interactions that you may have with someone. Sure, that's right. And, and so, so collaboration is, is critical and key. And, but, but you have to realize the collaboration can be through the, pub, the published work of, of other people. And so, for example, uh, someone could make a great deal of, of headway working with Darwin <laughs> based, on, based on his writings. And, and that's, in some sense, a collaborative effort. You're making use of what, what he said, and then you're, you're adding to that or, or combining in a, in a synthetic way. And so, so, so sure, I, I, I would argue that we scientists are, are all collaborators. Sometimes that means in person and together working on the project in a, a collaborative, immediately collaborative way. And, and at other times it's, it's building on what other people have done. And so, so sure, I would, I would say we're all, all collaborators in, in one, one sense or another. 
I really am glad that you, you said, you described collaboration in that framework, Kyle, because I think that many times we are thinking that we have to collaborate in person, but it's also that record and that's that evidence that you don't have to be in person and it doesn't have to necessarily be at the same time. So Kyle, as we're, at, as we're coming to a close, is there one piece of advice that you would want to share with those that listen? Yeah, and in fact, I'm going to quote E.O. Wilson. So he is a prominent biologist and conservationist. And so he has a, I think, particularly helpful piece of advice. And he said it with his characteristic eloquence. And so in fact, I'm I'm gonna give the quote verbatim, which is search until you find your passion then go all out to excel in its expression. And I, I, I just love that as a, as a piece of advice for what we should all be doing. And I try to use that as advice for, for counseling uh, students and, and giving them, helping them find their, their direction and, and their, their interests and, and their passions. And, I, and so I think that's just a, a good way good place to to wrap it up. Kyle, I I really want to thank you so very, very much for joining us and sharing your stories and and your perspectives. And uh, I, I look forward to when I get to chat with you a little bit more. Great. Thank you so much, Becky. If you want to learn more about Kyle's research, check out What Could Recovery Look Like for Blazing Australia? A post on Science Next, the official blog of the College of Science. This episode of LSU Experimental was recorded and produced in my home and is supported by LSU's communication across the curriculum in the College of Science. Today's episode includes Sound Engineering by Evan Prue. Theme music is Bramby at Full Gallop by PC3. To learn more about today's episode, ask questions, and recommend future investigators, visit cxc.lsu.edu forward slash experimental. And while you're there, subscribe to the podcast. We're available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and Google Play.